You have scholars going back and taking months and months and months to evaluate each decision. And what you're thinking is, well, obviously I couldn't get all that information. I did the best I could with what I knew. Imagine being the most influential economist in the world. That was the position that Ben Bernanke found himself in when he was appointed chair of the Federal Reserve System in 2006. And then in 2008, the financial crisis hit and he had to deal with that. In this conversation, I wanted to explore what gave him the confidence to make policy as he needed to under such circumstances, given that he was, prior to his appointment, Dean of the Economics Faculty at Princeton University and, like many others, perhaps a rather introverted academic. Was it something about his upbringing, his education, something innate in himself? Unsurprisingly, it's a combination of all these things. As you'll discover listening to this conversation with Ben Bernanke. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. Our guest is Ben Bernanke, the 2022 Laureate in Economic Sciences. He was awarded the prize for his research on banks and financial crises, he shared the prize with Douglas Diamond and Philip Dibvig. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Arefes. Today, Ben Bernanke is a Distinguished Senior Fellow with the Economic Studies Programme at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., You'll hear him speak about moving from academia to public life and then back again, about his background as a spelling champion and how he found his love for economics at the intersection of history and maths. But first, Adam asks him whether his time in the public eye before being awarded the prize has informed his experience of becoming a laureate. In a few cases, for instance, Barack Obama or Bob Dylan, or yourself, you've been living in the glare of publicity for a long time. And so it's a little bit different getting the call, I imagine. And I wondered whether, since you were used to it already, it made it easier to enjoy Nobel Week in December when you came. Yes, I think it did. I think most economists, most academics, when this happens to them, their life changes in an important way. They do a lot more public speaking. They get asked for their opinions on things which they have never studied. And that's, I think, the typical experience. In my case, I was the chairman of the Federal Reserve for eight years and also had other roles before that. And so I was used to speaking in public and, and hearing from policymakers and the like. So yeah, I was more comfortable in that respect. And Frankly, my speaking engagements and interviews have not increased <laughs> since uh, since I won the prize because uh, I was already frequently speaking in public. Yes, of course, of course. The experience of being in, in Stockholm, I think many laureates find rather overwhelming. By the end of Nobel Week, they're absolutely exhausted. Did you find yourself exhausted or were you fresh and ready for Christmas? <laughs> it was a very, very busy week. There was things going on uh, every day, multiple interviews or ceremonies or dinners. I think my one disappointment was that my wife and, and my guests got to see more of Stockholm than I did. I would be going to uh, various events and, and my family was able to uh, go to a museum or take a cruise or, or otherwise see the city. 
Let me just take you back there for a moment by playing a clip from the award ceremony. It is an honor and a privilege for me to convey to you on behalf of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences our warmest congratulations. May I now please ask you to step forward and receive your prize from His Majesty the King. It was very exciting, of course. I'm a, <laughs> I was, you know, you have to cross the stage to go accept the award. So I was making, you know, worrying that I might trip or, <laughs> or, or do something else embarrassing. But uh, of course, it was the culmination of the week. And it was a quite impressive scene with uh, the entire audience, all the men dressed in, in white tie and tails and the women in gowns. Such a nice formal occasion with the music and hearing my fellow uh, laureates. You know, it was obviously a very great moment, but it was uh, only part of that whole week of celebrations and interviews and the like. What was emphasized in the presentation speech was the fact that you as an academic had found yourself in the position of being a practitioner and how you had been called upon in 2008 to act in a way that pretty much had to save the global economy, which is a very unusual position to find yourself in. I wanted to explore a little bit how, I suppose, an academic who is generally, I suppose, presumed to be a rather shy individual by society at large, suddenly finds the confidence to be able to act in that way. Yes, I am. Uh, I am by nature introverted, but uh, necessity you know, creates its own requirements. And it was obviously a very difficult situation. My research helped prepare me to think about what was happening since my work was about uh, the depression, about financial crises, about their effects on the economy. And obviously here was an example in real time of global financial crisis. So it was difficult, but again, it was absolutely essential, of course, that we, uh, we I say we because I had great colleagues, uh, both uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, uh, later uh, Timothy Geithner, as well as many staff and colleagues at the Federal Reserve uh, to help. And so I was really out there by myself. I was usually had some kind of support. And obviously, it was incredibly important to voice my views and to let people know what we're doing. I once said that uh, central banking is 98% talk and 2% action. Uh, so... <laughs> The talk part and communication is very important, both in policy and in politics. It's been commented of you that you're somebody who likes to speak last, not first, which is perhaps not a usual trait in a leader, but perhaps one to be desired. Does that ring true? Yeah, I think that is true. For example, in the monetary policy meetings of the Federal Reserve, there are many policymakers around the table. And I would, as a matter of routine, ask everyone else to speak first, I would then summarize what I had heard and then make my own recommendation. So that was indeed the practice that I followed. And prior to being a, a policymaker, I was an academic and I was for seven years the chair of the Princeton Economics Department. And once again, you had to deal with people with uh, high intelligence and strong opinions and coming to a consensus I think was very important. From the outside, it often seems to the public that the chair of the Federal Reserve or the president, whatever leader we're talking about, is sort of acting as an individual. And that's never true. 
it's always important to build consensus within your organization or within your government and to listen to what other people have to say that will inform your decision and point out potential pitfalls, for example. So I think the only drawback of that approach is that sometimes it takes a little bit longer to come to a decision than otherwise. And on a few occasions, you know, when I felt that it was necessary, I took unilateral or, or very quick decisions. But whenever possible, uh, it was both helpful and also confidence building to try to get everybody's input and to try to build a consensus. Hmm. Just from a personal perspective, it must be a little bit terrifying that if you, on a Monday, as you did in 2008, you announce a three-quarter percent reduction in interest rates in order to stem the tide. I mean, sure, you've made the decision based on everything you know, but it must be scary. I think terrifying is too strong a word, but it was certainly anxiety-producing. Again, one of the elements of a financial crisis is, first of all, it's very hard to predict. You know, we did not predict a crisis of the magnitude that happened, you know, months in advance. Almost by their nature, financial crises are very hard to predict because they do depend on confidence and on random events that may occur. So you're operating in what Timothy Geithner used to call the fog of war, uh, <laughs> that there's always many things happening. You cannot possibly know everything you would like to know. What always happens, of course, is that 10 years later, you have scholars going back and you know, taking months and months and months to evaluate each decision. And what you're thinking is, well, obviously, I didn't have all that information. I couldn't get all that information. I did the best I could with what I knew. And uh, inevitably, that creates a lot of anxiety, a lot of concern. But frankly, I was just so focused on what needed to be done and on trying to build a consensus with my colleagues that I didn't have a lot of time to reflect on the, you know, on the emotional aspects of this. And I had good support from, uh, from my family and, again, from my colleagues. And you know, we, we just took one step at a time. And I suppose that in that position, it takes a lot out of all of you. It does. Certainly, I had very irregular hours and, and very long, uh, long days, uh, weekends. I think the most important thing that my family could do would be to provide refuge, some normalcy, where you could leave the chaos and have some place to go. <laughs> At work, you would make some $10 billion decision and then you would come home and discuss the water bill with your wife, you know, or put out the garbage. It created some sense of, first of all, of what you were working for, that is not just my own family, but for families across the country, but also a sense of refuge and a sense of support that was unconditional. I knew I had people on my side in that respect, and that was, that was always good. My wife had her own interests. She's a longtime teacher, and she, in 2008 of all time, she founded a small private school in Washington, which she's still running today with innovative teaching techniques. And she was doing that. So she had her own things that she was concerned about, but she was always there. And we always, when I was available, we would have dinner together and, and the like. And that is very important for, I think, for anybody in a high stress uh, position, whether it's public or private. Actually, that brings me to a second clip I'd like to play. This is President Obama speaking about you. Let's listen to President Obama. You know, after I became president, uh, I was proud to nominate Ben for a second term. Uh, and while the Fed is and must always be independent, uh, I want you to know, Ben, I'm personally very grateful to you uh, for being such a strong partner in helping America recover from recession. Uh, 
perhaps it's no surprise as the son of a pharmacist and a school teacher that Ben Bernanke is the epitome of calm. Uh, and against the volatility of global markets, he's been a voice of wisdom uh, and a steady hand. First of all, it must be nice listening to that again. Yes, and I would just like to say that one of the things that helped me considerably was that both President Bush, who appointed me originally, and President Obama, who reappointed me, so a Republican and a Democrat, were very supportive throughout the crisis and on the one hand gave us what we needed and the other hand respected the independence of the Federal Reserve to make decisions, especially monetary policy decisions. So I, I was very lucky in that respect. And I was gratified that uh, President Obama saw fit to reappoint me because at the time that he reappointed me, which was in 2009, the crisis had been calmed, but the economy was in still very bad shape. And a different president might have said, you know, it's not a great record. I, I, I need somebody different. But he gave me the chance to continue to finish the job, so to speak. And and again, I was very grateful uh, to do that, even though part of me said another four years of this is going to be <laughs> a lot of stress. But I did have very good relationships with both presidents that I served under. And very different administrations to work with. So again, it speaks to your ability, I guess, to talk to lots of different sorts of people and gain consensus? Well, I'm just not all that politically in inclined. I'm, I'm more interested in the analytics of the economics, of the implications of economic decisions for the well-being of the broader public. And I tried to avoid, you know, I, when I was chair, I never voted, for example. I just felt that I needed to take a neutral political perspective and, and again, this was the consensus building part that we've been talking about, which is, you know, I frequently had to testify before Congress. I testified some 80 times. And uh, of course, you had to deal with very different perspectives on the two sides of the aisle. And I couldn't always satisfy them. And sometimes they were very critical, but I did my best to try to answer in a straightforward way and to try to explain what we were doing, why we were doing it, and, and why it would be beneficial to follow that strategy. And that reappointment by Obama does speak volumes, again, about the confidence that he and others had in you, because he obviously had to project confidence himself. So reappointing you was quite a vote of support. Yes, I interpreted it that way. Um, there had been I think, some tradition, you know, going back uh, to Alan Greenspan, who was reappointed, I think, some four times by both Republicans and Democrats, I think there had been some tradition because the Fed, like other major central banks, is supposedly independent of the executive branch, that in the past, chairs who had done at least a reasonably good job were typically reappointed by the president, even if parties had changed in, in the meantime. So in reappointing me, he was not setting a new precedent in, in, in a sense, but it was a vote of confidence, obviously, given the, the circumstances of the time. And I will say that, uh, you know, he was very engaged, particularly, you know, the Fed, besides monetary policy and financial crisis, financial stability issues also has a regulatory role. And 2010, there were major regulatory reforms in the United States, which I as the Fed chair had considerable input to, and the Treasury Secretary and the like, and the President would call us to the White House to talk about those things as well. So he was engaged. I was, of course, gratified that he saw fit to reappoint me. So he mentioned your pharmacist-teacher combination upbringing. 
You grew up in South Carolina, in Dillon, South Carolina. What was it like, the home life? All my grandparents, all four of them were immigrants from Eastern Europe. They all came originally to New York and, and other large cities. And my father's father was a pharmacist also, and he moved to Dillon in order to buy a pharmacy that was for sale there, and he brought his family with him. Uh, you know, some cultural mismatch there. We were one of the very few uh, Jewish families in that town. But that being said, you know, uh, I made friends there and played in the high school band and participated in, in other activities. My father and his brother were pharmacists, and they owned the store together. They bought it from my grandfather, who had started it. And they were important people in the town, because I think in the entire town, we had one doctor. <laughs> so people would frequently come to the pharmacy and say, you know, ask for, you know, simple medical advice or for nutritional advice, etc. And my uh, father and uncle, who were called Dr. Phil and Dr. Mort, would, you know, have that kind of relationship. My mother was a teacher for a while, but when I was growing up, she was mostly a housewife. She stayed at home or she worked part-time in the drugstore uh, doing uh, various jobs. So I, I had, uh, my mother was there most of the time and it was a, a good home life. I had two younger siblings, a brother who is now a lawyer and a sister who is an administrator in a music college. So again, it was, I think, a small town childhood and in that respect, similar to many other people. But Having said that, there was quite a bit of culture shock when I left there and went to, you know, Cambridge, for example, to go to college. Indeed, yes. From Dillon to Harvard, yes. Do you think actually it was a blessing to have been brought up in a small town in South Carolina rather than in New York, for instance, where it could have happened? There were frankly pluses and minuses. I mean, I think on the one hand, you know, I mentioned the cultural mismatch. I went to public schools in Dillon, which were probably not as good as, you know, the best schools in, in New York, for example. But on the other hand, uh, living in a small town does have uh, a lot of advantages. I worked various jobs. I worked uh, construction. I worked uh, waiting on tables. I worked in the drugstore. I had friends, obviously, who, you know, had worked on, on farms and agricultural work. I think one thing that I got out of being in Dillon, besides just sort of a sense of what broader America is like outside of, you know, the big metropolises. Besides that, I think I got at least a sense of how hard it is for the ordinary person to put food on the table. You know, I, working as a construction worker, an unskilled worker, as I did for one summer, is very hard, didn't pay much. And, you know, I said, this is a hard way to make a living. Waiting on tables was also, uh, you know, long hours and sometimes... You had obstreperous uh, customers or customers who didn't tip. And so, again, it was, I think, a useful education for me when I was Fed chair. And, of course, I was always looking at the numbers. Here comes uh, a number about how many jobs were created last month, for example. On the one hand, as an economist, I'm looking at that number and trying to think about how it fits into a broader economic picture. But on the other hand, having grown up in a small town, not a very rich town, economically very stressed place, you know, I could think about the real families, real people that those numbers represented. And that was important to me. You were also a stellar student. You seemed to excel easily. Or was it you had a very good work ethic from a very early age? I just liked to learn. I think I had ability. Hmm. So I never had any problems in school. I was the state spelling champion in sixth grade. 
Um, and you know, later I, I won a statewide award that allowed me to make my first uh, foreign trip, a short uh, tour of Europe. And when I was a senior in high school, frankly, when I went to college, when I went to Harvard, I was fairly shocked <laughs> because I found that I actually had to study, which I had never done before. And I was faced with, you know, a much more extensive and competitive environment than I had been used to. Hmm. I've never participated in a spelling bee, but I've seen I've seen them televised and they look absolutely terrifying, in fact. <laughs> well, like everything else, they've become professionalized. When I was competing in the state, I actually won the, the state spelling bee even and went to Washington to compete in the national uh, spelling <laughs> bee, but I didn't really study for it. <laughs> Again, I mean, I didn't sit and memorize long lists of words. I think now the uh, competitors you know, basically put their lives on hold for months in order to study long lists of difficult and obscure words. Like I said, it's sort of come more professionalized than it was many years ago when I was involved in that. So does this ability to spell indicate a particular love of words? I mean, you write quite a lot of books. Are words very important to you? Let me just first say that spelling is a sort of unusual talent that not everybody has it. And some of the people who don't have it include great authors and very smart people. So I'm not saying it's correlated with ability in, in any way, but I always have been interested in words. Even as a, a young child, I was interested in where words came from. And I would listen to, you know, some expression, you know, some idiom. It, it doesn't really make sense. Where did that come from? And my life is much better now because now I can look at my phone and it will tell me, you know, where the expression was originated or where the word came from. When I was, uh, you know, growing up in Dillon, we didn't have such easy references. But I've always been interested in, in the origins of words. And I feel always very unwillingly kind of irritated when journalists and others misuse words or spell them wrong or, or the like. And I know that's not rational, but it's just something that I have from my, uh, from my childhood. Do you read a lot? I read all the time. I read, I don't know, three or four books a week, probably. Gosh. Of all different types. And the thing I would say is I don't read much economics. I read mostly either fiction, some of it junky fiction, like detective uh, novels, but other kinds of fiction as well. And then I've always tried to be broad in my interest, you know, reading about science or mathematics or biology or uh, astronomy, whatever other fields, you know, are, are interesting. You know, right now we have a lot of interesting things happening in artificial intelligence, for example, computing. So, you know, while I'm obviously not an expert or a specialist in any of these fields outside of economics, I do like to keep up and I like to read, you know, good popular writers who can explain, you know, in reasonably clear terms what, you know, what's happening in these different fields. So I do have very eclectic tastes and I think I could have been something else other than an economist. It was almost an accident that I, I ended up in economics because I liked some courses that I took at Harvard. So I, I do have broad tastes and I, and I do like to read. And it fits with my introverted personality that, you know, rather than going out to a, a big party, I would rather stay home with a book if, if at all possible. Would you identify one book that has particularly influenced you? I don't think so. I mean, I could give you many, many books that I found, you know, fascinating. It's a very esoteric example, but there was a computer scientist and philosopher named Douglas Hofstadter who wrote a book called Gerdell, Escher, and Bach, which was about self-referential thinking. And essentially, it 
sort of try to get into the, the uh, meaning of intelligence and consciousness uh, from a philosophical point of view and a mathematical point of view. If words were nuts and bolts, people could make any bolt fit into any nut. They just squish the one into the other, as in some surrealistic painting where everything goes soft. Language in human hands becomes almost like a fluid, despite the coarse grain of its components. Very obscure book. Most people don't find it very interesting, but I, I just found it very stimulating. I read it many, many years ago. But I've read many great books, you know, since then, and, and I'd have to sit down and try to make a list. I, I feel any, anyone I told you would be offending or leaving out things that were, were important. So, Adam, Ben Bernanke's research has focused on the Great Depression. Could you tell us a little bit about that period of history? Yes. The Great Depression was the longest and deepest downturn the modern economy has ever seen. It began in 1929 in the US. At the end of a decade of relative affluence in the US, the Roaring Twenties, and then suddenly this downturn began. And then it went on right up and into the Second World War, only stopping in 1941. So it lasted over a decade. And although it started in the US, it spread around the world, causing misery for millions and having profound consequences that extend, I suppose, up till this day. It was a period in which there were massive rises in unemployment and massive decreases in production. And I suppose for most of us, it's some of the iconic images from that time that stick with us. Pictures of very long lines of people trying to get a job, people just desperate to find work of any sort. So many films that capture the misery of that time, you know, from John Steinbeck to, for instance, It's a Wonderful Life. Do you know, I'm actually embarrassed to admit I haven't seen that film, Adam. <laughs> what do you do at Christmas? <laughs> We're watching Elf at Christmas. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm sure you're familiar with the iconic scene from it in which people are massing outside the doors of a bank trying to get their money back. And uh, one of the things that happened during the Depression was that many banks failed. And in the end, in the US, it led to a complete collapse of the banking system in 1933. And that collapse of the banking system is something that Ben Bernanke in particular has identified as being important in the Great Depression. What have been the consequences of Ben Bernanke identifying the importance of that? Well, it's changed, I suppose, the way that people look at bank failure. What he saw was that the closing of banks, which before his work had perhaps been seen more as a, just a consequence of the Depression, actually had a causative influence, that the fact that there were no longer banks around who could provide loans to people meant that people couldn't get credit to build their way back out of the recession. And so that just prolonged the thing. And now people realise that even in the midst of crises, it's very important to preserve the credit system. And so central bankers around the world these days try very hard to preserve the integrity of banks. And central banks tend to act as a lender of last resort so that even if a bank is about to collapse, there's somebody who will guarantee that the depositors can get their money back. And uh, that's playing out around us in real time, unfortunately, at the moment. You know, we've recently seen three commercial banks in the US fail, which wasn't expected. And so the role of policymakers in reacting to that sort of situation is very much in the news at the moment. It's very interesting to listen to Ben Bernanke talk about what got him interested in this huge topic of the Great Depression. Let's take a listen to that. 
the Great Depression was this global catastrophe where you had all of these workers and factories, you know, unemployed and not producing when in some sense, you know, they could have been producing. And it's just a big puzzle because the underlying paradigm of economics going back to Adam Smith in, in 1776, which has also been very influential in modern economics, is that market economies will make good use of resources. Prices will direct resources into the most productive uses and give people incentives to find the most useful uh, occupations and the like. And that world of market clearing where prices are signals, et cetera, doesn't fit very well with the idea that for more than a decade, we had unemployment ranging from, depending on how you measure it, you know, ranging from uh, 15 to 25%. In the United States at a time, by the way, when we didn't have, you know, unemployment insurance and other kinds of things to help the unemployed, you know, make do. Uh, so I, I always found it to be just a fascinating puzzle. And, and I, by the time I got to grad school, I didn't, there were obviously a lot of theories out there and none of them were completely satisfactory. Let me tell you a quick story. My mother's parents, my grandparents uh, who lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, I used to visit them as a young child. I used to visit them in the summer. And I'd sit on the front porch, with, particularly with my grandmother, and just she'd tell me about her, her life. And she told me once about when she lived in Connecticut in a town that had shoe factories. And the shoe factory shut down during the Depression because there wasn't enough demand. And she told me that many children in that town went to school with ragged shoes or maybe even no shoes at all. And I said, well, why, you know, a six-year-old child, I said, why were they doing that? And she said, well, because their fathers had lost their jobs when the shoe factories closed. And I said, wait a minute. Why don't they just open up the shoe factories and make shoes for the children? And she said, no, it doesn't work that way. And I, I just thought that was just so incomprehensible. <laughs> and why resources are sitting there not being used. And, and that really, uh, you know, I read Grapes of Wrath and other depression-related stuff even through uh, high school. And uh, when I got to graduate school and began to think about what fields I was interested in, I became convinced that macroeconomics and monetary economics was really worth studying because that would help you understand big, big events like the Depression, which not only created an enormous amount of economic hardship, but arguably led to the ascent of uh, Hitler and the World War II and, and all that followed from that. So these are very, very important issues, and I couldn't see how you wouldn't at least be interested in those questions. So the interest in the Depression was there, and then the tools were provided by economics to address what happened. Were you surprised by what you found, which was that the role of banks, the stability of banks, was much more important than had previously been assumed, that they really had a deciding factor? Well, the prevailing story when I was in graduate school was that the depression was caused by a collapse of the money supply, which in turn led to falling prices and to other problems. And I think there's actually some truth to that because the gold standard was prevailing at that time and it collapsed after World War I and brought down money supplies and prices and was a powerful depressing force. And people like Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz documented the relevance of the collapse of the money supply to the economy. But there was a very other, I mean, if you just read about the Depression, if you read diaries or memoirs of the Depression, one of the other aspects of it is just simply the financial distress, not just falling prices, but the fact that 
businesses were failing, banks were failing, individuals were obviously in huge financial distress. They couldn't pay the mortgages. The rate of failure of um, delinquency on, on home mortgages and the depression was probably two or three times what it was during the global financial crisis. And that you know, was a horrible period. And so you know, it seemed to me in some sense obvious that the breakdown of the credit system, which at that time, most credit was provided by banks, and about a third of all the banks in the United States, thousands of banks failed during the Depression, that the breakdown of the credit system would have to be you know, a negative for the economy. And I don't dispute the fact that monetary issues were important. And in fact, when I was Fed chair, obviously, I tried to ensure that monetary policy was supporting economic recovery. But it really did seem to me that there had to be some influence of the financial distress from bank failures and debtor bankruptcies and firm failures and the like. And I think, you know, <laughs> there are not very many good aspects of the global financial crisis. But one thing, I think you can't explain that crisis of 2008 by monetary forces. That was clearly a crisis that was brought about by a collapsing financial system and widespread default and widespread financial distress. So ironically, you know, the experience of 2008 kind of reinforces the idea that these issues must have been important uh, in the 1930s as well. What I hope I did was to try to add a dimension to our understanding of the Depression. I feel now that I understand the Depression. I feel that I understand why it was as bad as it was and why uh, some policies helped improve the situation and others did not. So I, I at least have been able to answer my six-year-old question, I think, to my own satisfaction at this point. Indeed. And do you think, I mean, given recent events with um, Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, for instance, do you think we're always teetering on the brink of these things? No, we're not always. Yes, yes. Let me say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that confidence is always a ephemeral thing. And if there's a sufficiently widespread loss of confidence or other unexpected events, you know, then you can have a lot of uh, financial distress. And so one thing I've learned is to never say never. It's always possible. But many of the warning signs you know, we saw in the Depression and at the early stages of the global financial crisis, like large quantities of bad debt, like subprime mortgages and a credit boom, weakness in a variety of financial institutions, we're not seeing that at least so far in the current system. And you know, since the global financial crisis, there have been a lot of changes in, for example, capital requirements and the like that have made banks stronger. Now, again, I think you should never say never. In the United States, unlike Europe, banks actually provide less than half the credit that people and firms use. A lot of credit is provided by other kinds of institutions, which are collectively known as shadow banks, which are not official banks and which are much more difficult to monitor and which are much less regulated. And uh, I've been concerned about those ever since, you know, the financial crisis. I don't think that the regulatory strengthening that was done for banks has been quite as effective and comprehensive in the case of shadow banks. And so there probably could well be things happening, you know, in the shadow banking system that the regulators and policymakers are not aware of. So I think uh, vigilance is, is always important. You, you should always assume that financial instability is a possibility. You should always be on the alert. You should be always trying to find ways to strengthen the financial system. But at the moment, I mean, I think, you know, we'll see. We'll see. But uh, again, never say never. But it looks like the response of the Fed and the Treasury and FDIC 
has stopped what seemed at the time to be some risk of contagion to other banks. And, and at least so far, we haven't seen that kind of contagion. Uh, yes. And again and again, it must be nice to see your own approach to policy vindicated. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think that uh, if you say my approach to policy means that financial stability is very important for the economy, which is a one-sentence summary of, of my research, I think that has clearly been vindicated. But I certainly have plenty of critics even today about exactly how we approach that and why we didn't identify the crisis earlier and uh, what other steps we might have taken. And I myself, you know, again, I'm not completely satisfied with all the regulatory changes that have been made. And so there's plenty of room for debate and discussion. But the idea that financial stability is important for the economy, which surprisingly enough, when I was first working on these issues back in the, in the 80s, was not a mainstream idea, I think is now pretty well, it has to be well accepted by this point. In a way, your career describes as kind of an arc that you're an academic, you become dean of the economics department at Princeton, and then you're thrust into this position of having to be doing as well as thinking. And now you're back to being a, an academic again. What's it like to see those different sides of life as an academic and then return to academia? Well, the experience of being a policymaker, and you know, it's only a minority of economists who get that opportunity, certainly influences the way you think about economics and affects the decisions about what research you'd like to do and the like. I'm glad to be back in a research mode. I, I think that I had a very difficult but also informative experience as a policymaker, but I think I'm ready now to reflect and to write and to try to distill the lessons that I, I learned in that experience. So I think particularly at this stage of my, my life, when I'm you know, no longer a young professor scrambling to publish or perish and I can write what I want to write, I think it's actually a very good life because uh, you can work on what you want to work on. And you know, if something doesn't work out, it's not a disaster. But I've actually you know, done some work you know, since my policy time, which I think has been I'm proud of. I think it's been good and it's contributed to policy debates and the like. And I hope to continue to do that, both uh, in articles uh, and in books. I mean, obviously, curiosity came naturally to you and it seems to continue unabated. It's a marvellous gift to have. Yeah, my curiosity is intellectual curiosity. I like concepts and ideas. I'm probably not so curious about, uh, I don't know, mechanical things, for example, and I'm not adept in, uh, you know, fixing things around the house, for example. In that respect, I'm probably quite different from my physics uh, laureate colleagues. And, but I, I just enjoy uh, ideas and enjoy conceptual thinking. I thought in high school that I might become a mathematician, but you know, I, it was a little bit too withdrawn from social life you know, for me. And, and I found economics to be an area that combined quantitative mathematical and abstract thinking with social science, concerns about society, concerns about the public. So it was a good compromise for me in terms of my interests in general. But I've, I've always been just very stimulated by ideas and uh, I continue to be like to follow ideas. And that's why I think we mentioned earlier artificial intelligence. I mean, I think some of the directions that science and technology are going today are extremely interesting. And well, I don't pretend to you know, be a contributor or, or even fully understand these developments, I, I like to follow them closely. 
what you just said is so common to hear among economists and economics laureates that they'd thought of doing maths and then they realised, if you like, that you can study and understand and perhaps even tweak social issues through maths by becoming an economist. It also interacted with my interest in, I've always been interested in history as well. And I think that understanding the economics of how things work really sheds a new dimension on all of these, you know, important periods. What was the economics behind World War II? I, I read a, a very dense but very interesting book uh, by Adam Tooze about the war economy in Nazi Germany. You know, how the economy worked in Germany and how the ability of the Nazis to develop, you know, weapons and get oil and develop, you know, ammunition supplies, etc., supported or constrained their ability to wage war. Ultimately, you know, economics is a very, very important component of warfare, of social conflict, of opportunities that ordinary people have. And so, again, a, a knowledge of economics really throws a new light on history that if you don't know economics, you know, you, you think it's all about kings and queens and battles. There's <laughs> a lot more to history than that. And economics captures how ordinary people live and, and why they lived the way they did, which is not often left out of history books. Absolutely, yes. And so again, yes, it becomes a lens with which to, to analyse everything. That's right, yes. This has been very informative and a huge pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Ben Bernanke, you can go to nobelprize.org, where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Cardin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lindquist and me. Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. Serving as head of the Federal Reserve certainly put Ben Bernanke in the spotlight. We've spotlighted more than a dozen other brilliant economists in earlier episodes. Find them on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.